resulted in a much larger than expected insurance premium and an estimate of some $70,000 per year. The insurance appraisal raised concerns both about possible theft and the state of conservation of the reliefs. After discussion and consultation with students, faculty and staff, the VTS Board of Trustees decided to sell the largest of the three tablets. In the September 2018 press release from VTS announcing the sale, they said, it was, difficult. it was a difficult decision, said Markham, who was then the Dean and President of VTS. These are world-class treasures that have been part of the Virginia Theological Seminary's history for over 150 years. On October 31st, 2018, Christie's Auction House sold the seven-foot stone panel from VTS collection. Max Bernheimer, who's the ancient antiquities specialist of Christie's, remarked that this sale was one for the ages. The price realized, which includes the buyer's premium, was over $30 million. The identity of the consumer remains anonymous. Partage from the French to share was the long-standing practice dating to the 19th century, which ensured that under the supervision of the relevant antiquities authority, artworks and artifacts discovered by an expedition could be divided between the nation state, the foreign institutions sponsoring the project, and sometimes the landowner. Under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, but often the remote provinces, Ottoman archeological reg regulations were only haphazardly enforced, according to Bernhardson. It became standard practice among the British and the French that rights to these sites belonged to the nation whose representative first excavated it. Partage may have given Laird the right to disperse the Neo-Assyrian reliefs to VTS. And while VTS might be legally entitled to sell the Neo-Assyrian relief, is it right? What are the consequences of such a sale and other licensed antiquities markets? Who benefits, who loses? Drawing from this 2004 edited volume by Nikos Passas and Neva Goodwin, legal, but it ain't right, and using the state licensed market for antiquities in Israel as a lens, I want to examine legal versus right, quirks of law, and the damaging effects of demand for archaeological objects, and maybe some possible ways to mitigate harm. In the introduction to their edited volume, Passas and Goodwin suggests, quote, there is a common assumption that if an industry is legal, it's basically benign and beneficial to society. I would suggest that this notion conceals the undesirable negative externalities associated with the legal enterprise. Negative externalities occur when the consumption of production or production of a good causes a harmful effect to a third party. Harmful effects associated with the antiquities trade may include landscape and object destruction, which may in turn affect tourism. Also an inability to reconstruct the past and local communities divorced from their heritage. Society is impacted negatively because legal or illegal demand damages, if not destroys, much of the invaluable, intangible information connected to the artifact. And this is one of the sites that I work at with Austin Chad Hill and Meredith Chesson on the Dead Sea Plain in Jordan. This is the site of Baba Dra, which has by some been thought to be biblical Sodom, which we'll come into later. Many of you may be familiar, if not tired of my reports on the legal market in Israel, but I'm gonna provide a short recap for those who are unfamiliar with this work. 
In Israel and in a few other nations, it's legal to buy and sell and then export an antiquity. The Israel Antiquities Authority of 1978, which is a legacy of earlier Ottoman laws and British mandate ordinances and Israeli military orders, has a provision for a state-sanctioned sale of eligible cultural objects. Under the law, in order to sell antiquities legally, each year a dealer submits a request for a license to the Israel Antiquities Anti-Theft Unit, and that's the division charged with oversight of the antiquities market. Currently, there are some 50 plus licensed dealers by the IAA, and most are descendant from Israeli and Palestinian families that have been in the business for generations. Dealers tell me that their identities within the social spheres of Israel and Palestine are entwined with traditional trade practices and networks of artifact exchange. In supplying the market with antiquities, dealers offer an invaluable service to the state by contributing to the tourism economy. They view themselves as culturally significant, but also fiscally and pragmatically essential. Interviewed dealers argue, quote, if people want to buy a reminder of their trip to the Holy Land, then we should supply it to them. And in turn, we can make a living and support the economy. If I didn't sell this material, people would still loot archaeological sites and someone else would come along, get a license and sell the stuff to a tourist from America. And that's quoting dealer 13. Most tourists want a memento of the Holy Land and licensed dealers have items legally available to buy. To become a state sanctioned dealer the Israelis, in the Israeli system, there's an associated licensing fee of around $1,000 a year. The approved business must display their license prominently and it, it must not be expired. Dealers should not deal in fakes or in composites, and a composite is an antiquity consisting of different parts of other antiquities all glued together and then made to look old and sold as a complete thing. They must report all items of national value to the Israeli Antiquity Authority, who then make a determination on whether the item should be acquired for the national repository. In order to comply with the 1978 antiquities law licensing requirements, the dealer, Israeli or Palestinian, is required to submit an inventory of each item, assigning a unique number to each artifact in their holdings, which should be comprised of pre-1978 dealer inventories. The only way new archaeological material should be available in this market is through museum deaccessioning, so museums selling off some of their redundant or duplicate material, or inherited collections. So if you were the grandson of Moshe Dayan and collect and inherited his collection, you could sell it on as a grandfathered in element of the law. Until recently, the registry was typically a handwritten ledger, like this one I have example here, or an Excel spreadsheet with vague descriptions of items like buff colored pot, accompanied by a often hastily taking purposely blurry image. In order to sell an item from the official shop registry, the dealer makes a request for an export license issued by the IAA. The dealer provides the unique number for the item. The IAA checks the registry, crosses off the item's number, and issues the export permit. The dealer provides the buyer with the artifact and the associated export license, so the object can leave the shop and perhaps the country legally exported. But here's where the tale grows a bit murky. Due to a very poorly worded session, section of the 1978 law, the onus is on the buyer to ask the dealer for the export permit. 
there's no stipulation in the law requiring dealers to provide an export license. Buyers visiting a licensed shop are mainly concerned with questions of authenticity. They want to know if the pot's real, if it's from the Holy Land, did someone from the Bible hold it? And those are all direct quotes. Um, sorry, they assume because they're making the purchase in a state licensed shop, they're required to do nothing further as part of the transaction. Unclear in the process is the need for an export license to take the artifact outside of the country. If the tourist doesn't ask for the license, the dealer doesn't have to offer one and the artifact might leave the shop without any real record of the sale because the Israel Antiquities Authority was never contacted with a request for an export license. If there's no request for the export license and no record of the sale, the original inventory number can be reused for a similar buff colored pot, which is why a blurry photo and a vague description of the pot are very useful. The description of photograph are generic enough for use with almost any similarly looted object. Through this exchange of registry numbers, recently looted or stolen material is laundered and enters the supposedly closed Israeli market. Illegal material appears in the legal market through a quirk in the law, to quote noted cultural heritage law expert Patty Gersenbluff. In her 2004 paper on licit and illicit trade in antiquities, Gerstenlith outlines a series of quirks existing in national and international legal regimes that allow for laundering scenarios just as described. This type of quirk is not limited to Israel, and it also has allowed for looted material, looted or stolen material from other parts of the region to enter the market. Some of the best sellers are Egyptian material and Mesopotamian material. In order to tighten this laundering quirk in the 1978 law, in 2016, the IAA instituted additional licensing guidelines, which now compel all licensed dealers to allocate a unique identification number and associated picture for each artifact, which is now stored in a national electronic database. Requiring an attached digital image to an individual registry number should make it more difficult to launder newly excavated pieces with ambiguous descriptions and fuzzy images. Under this additional regulation, when a licensed dealer sells an object, it must be erased from the digital record of the seller's register, which is connected to the national database, thus buttressing what has otherwise been a system of quirks. When most countries have banned or curtailed the trade, why is it still legal to buy and sell artifacts in Israel? Since the enactment of the 1978 law, there have been movements to tighten the controls on the sale of antiquities, but the dealer and collecting lobby is wealthy, influential, and very vocal. In their introduction to the edited volume on the harmful consequences of legal industries, Passos and Goodwin assert, quote, while often the main reason why such practices remain legal and accepted by society is that industries mobilize financial and other resources to avoid stricter regulation. Tourism plays a significant role in the regional economy and individual tourists buying antiquities in the legal market is an integral element of this economy. And I encourage you to see the paper by uh, David Elan and colleagues for statistics associated with the low end consumption of everyday items like oil lamps. It is the bulk of this trade. 
With both Palestinian and Israeli licensed dealers, there's bipartisan support from local businesses to maintain the current configuration of trade. A law authorizing a state-sanctioned trade that exists in Israel uh, is due to the efforts of Israeli politicians like Moshe Dayan and Teddy Kolik, who was once the uh, mayor of Jerusalem, and other prominent, prominent Palestinian families like the Baidoons and the Barakats, all of whom give primacy of the human right to free enterprise over the notion of heritage as a commons. Eitan Klein, who's the deputy director of the anti-theft union at the Israel Antiquities Authority suggests, quote, forbidding commerce in Israel, excuse me, forbidding commerce and antiquities in Israel would cause a conflict with the constitutional right of freedom of, enter of commerce, end quote. An issue already taken up by the Israeli par parliament. Quote, it's in my blood, it's in the blood of my grandfather and it's in the blood of my son, stated dealer 12 when asked about alternative career choices. Various dealers, three, 12, 19, 22 and 25 emphasize their lifelong connection to the trade and antiquities avowing that it's their identity, they know nothing else, and they have no idea what they'd do if their livelihood was taken away from them. Quote, we're merely meeting the demand, not creating it, said dealer eight. There exists an intractable divide. It's legal, the legal right to sell, and what is right and just for sites, objects, and local communities. Any sale of antiquities, even legal, results in the regrettable commodification of the past which is antithetical to the protection of cultural heritage. There's a consensus that a legal industry is benign and beneficial, but as Passos and Goodwin argue, quote, society may be negatively affected by allowing certain operations and practices to continue, end quote. While rooted in legal precedent and historically entrenched, the act of selling artifacts in Israel has a direct negative effect on the archeological landscape and loss of history a loss experienced locally, regionally, and internationally. There's a causal relationship between demand for archeological material and the looting of archeologicals in the sites to meet that demand. Quote, if a tourist comes into my store and wants to buy a figurine from the Iron II period, and I don't have one, I ask some of my fellow shopkeepers. If they don't have one, I call my middleman in Hebron to ask if he has any in his storeroom. Within days, I have one in my shop. I don't ask too many questions, but I do ask for the location of the find because lots of tourists want to know the name of the archaeological site that the figurine came from. And that's quoting dealer seven. I get catalogs, quote, uh, from the major auction houses. I check eBay and I monitor what's selling. Right now, inscriptions are hot. Anything with an inscription is a good seller. But, what I, uh, but I don't have many pieces. I'm always on the lookout for a good inscription. I make sure that my contacts in the territories know that I can easily move inscriptions. And that's quoting dealer 27. Ethnographic interviews with dealers reveal scenarios that confirm this tripart relationship between demand for a particular object, its appearance in their inventory, and the destruction at an archeological site. While we might be sympathetic with the centuries old operation of buying and selling antiquities, the selling of poorly documented or ungrounded and here I'm using the helpful term of Elizabeth Marlowe for artifacts with no backstory. Um, so the selling of ungrounded artifacts by Israeli and Palestinian dealers is inimical to the protection of sites and objects in the region. 
The presence of looted artifacts in this marketplace is supported by the readiness of consumers to purchase these undocumented artifacts, either unaware or overlooking the problematic details of archaeological find spot, owner object history, and the need for an export license. According to criminologist Simon McKenzie, negative externalities occur when corporations place some of the costs of their profit-seeking activity onto society. The corporation in the form of the licensed dealer, and here that is the blue area in the center, the distribution sector, places the negative cost of a looted landscape in the quest of an artifact on society. Buyers at the top of the pyramid are rarely, if ever, aware of the negative externality of a ravaged looted landscape, um, uh, sorry, of a ravaged archaeological landscape. And each one of these green dots is a looted tomb at the early bronze 1A site of Faifa on the Dead Sea Plain in Jordan. Created, uh, so these holes are created by the actors at the bottom of the pyramid. And these artifacts pass through these various hands, cross borders and undergo the laundering process on the, aware, on the way to the eventual sale in the licensed shop where individuals and institutions who may or may not be aware of the potential checkered past make their purchase. The economic transaction of selling a looted or stolen artifact results in the negative outcome of a population's inability to access their past. Objects are rarely, if ever seen again, in the area from which they originated. Even if they are seen again, the loss of associated archaeological, historical, and intangible information is irretrievable. These items are forever divorced from their origin stories. In their defense of the Assyrian relief sale, the Virginia Theological Press release states, quote, in the end, the trustees felt that the cost of maintaining the entire collection would pull resources from our primary mission to educate lay or ordained leaders for the Episcopal Church, end quote. This is an explanation which fits neatly into the classic collecting paradigm of buying or selling the past to save it. Here, employed by VTS in defense of their decision to sell the relief legally. VTS also declared that proceeds of the sale would underwrite the bicentennial initiatives, such as the Vocation Scholarship Fund, which is making residential seminary education more accessible to candidates who reflect a changing face of the Episcopal Church. So students, international students, students of color, and second career students would be benefiting from the sale of that antiquity. Funds would also be used for conservation and display of the remaining pair of carvings. Through the statement, VTS asks us, the public, to acknowledge, sorry, there's a big truck up there, um, asks us, the public, to acknowledge their altruistic act in selling the antiquity, because first, they admit that they can't adequately care for the piece, and second, the monies that they ge are generated from the sale are going to be dedicated to diversity, to a diversity scholarship fund. The declaration of benevolent motives and outcomes obscures any discussion of the original ownership, nor does it acknowledge the direct link between the legal demand of archaeological objects and the destruction of archaeological sites and monuments. While VTS is legally entitled to sell their artifacts, it seems they did not consider the full ethical consequences of their decision. For instance, might the sale contribute contribute to a heightened interest in material from the region, 
which could result in more looting in Iraq. The problem with looting in Iraq is well documented, but recent documented, but recent studies have also demonstrated the connection between the demand for archaeological material with murky or undocumented pasts available in legal market and terrorist financing. Scholarly research and ethnographic accounts, and here I would direct you to the work of Neil Brody and Isber Sabrine on Syrian looting and theft. U.S. congressional and NGO agency reports all provide evidence for the link between the looting of archaeological sites in Syria and Iraq and the funding of Daesh. We only need to look at all of these headlines to see the evidence is mounting in, on claims regarding the funding of terrorist organizations and the sale of undocumented artifacts. Whatever the true estimate of the scale of this trade, buying undocumented artifacts from the Middle East is funding terrorism, and that includes material on the Israeli market. In the 9-11 Commission report, it's claimed that Al-Qaeda was anticipating that its accounts would be frozen after the September 11th attacks and they sought to safeguard their finances by sinking money into a diverse portfolio, which included antiquities. Antiquities can be easily hidden, hold their value, and remain untraceable, so that reports of the connection between antiquities, uh, the trade in antiquities and Al-Qaeda should come as no real surprise. Hijack ringleader Mohammed Atta approached a German art professor about peddling Afghan antiquities. Germany's federal criminal police, uh, police office reported. Atta's reason was reported in Der Spiegel magazine of uh, wanting to finance the purchase of an airplane. Mounting evidence of the ongoing connection between looting, looted antiquities and terrorist funding prompted the FBI to issue a very rare warning to potential buyers or potential owners of Middle Eastern material and cautioning buyers to keep in mind that antiquities from Iraq remain subject to sanctions and purchasing an object looted or sold by the Islamic State might provide financial support to a terrorist organization and could lead to prosecution. Do reports and analyses connecting the antiquities market to terrorism and Daesh and Al-Qaeda in particular suffice to alert the collecting public to the illegal elements involved with the purchase of a Gandharan head or in this age of the economic instability, are art and antiquities the next hot investment, as time touted in December 2007? Or as potential investment and then donation, as my undergraduate alumni magazine recently trolled? What can be done to mitigate these harmful effects? One way to ensure that fewer items with little or no backstory are available in the legal market is to encourage and to reward robust due diligence by creating smarter collectors. Buyers who eschew items without complete history and accompanying paperwork. After years of archeological field work in Mali and encounters with looting and a robust market for archeological objects from the region, anthropological archeologists, Roderick McIntosh, Taraba Togala and Susan Keach McIntosh outlined a series of characteristics of what they term a good collector. Good here could be exchanged with ethical, responsible, principled, or honorable. 
the good collector concept engendered a lot of discussion as the basic premise was not to eradicate collecting, but rather to advocate for better collectors who ask all of these for all of the associated information about the object under consideration and those who refuse to purchase if the story is not complete. The market in Holy Land antiquities has endured for centuries, even millennia. It will not end no matter how foolproof the legal procedures become. The ongoing lure of material from the Middle East means that it's unrealistic and naive to think that a complete moratorium on collecting will succeed. Here, we need an evolution of attitudes in creating a smarter, more ethically discerning collectors, which would see buyers at the very least routinely asking for export license and at the best rejecting items that don't have any associated archeological fine spot and owner history. In order to change consumer practice to a more ethical entity of collecting grounded in stewardship, some have suggested the imposition of financial, legal and societal consequences for participants in the market for undocumented antiquities. To de-incentivize the undiscriminating collector they should be held accountable for the negative effects on the archaeological landscape and objects and thefts from museums, which are the direct result of demand. And here I would encourage you to see the work of Larry Rothfield for a discussion of a pollution tax on those who buy items with insecure background and a lack of associated documentation. Simon McKenzie argues that typically individuals and institutions don't set out to acquire illegal antiquities or to conduct unscrupulous activities, but sometimes they're misguided, misled, or even unaware. An emphasis on informed and thoughtful, more ethically conscious collector is a start to, quote, fostering a new culture of collecting that focuses on the full story that object can tell us, end quote, as Gerstenbluth suggests. In order to diminish the negative externalities that are the result of ill-informed demand, a good or smarter collector uh, and a more ethical collector, individual or institutional, who understands the ramifications of collecting is necessary. The smarter collector should be the new paradigm for object acquisition. Ethically discerning collectors would demand transparency and information from sellers, although admittedly this is only one element of the larger issue of amending a law with quirks like the Israeli 1978 law and a business model where illegal items are routinely laundered and made legally available for sale. By the time a visitor encounters a vessel in a shop in the Israeli market with the assigned registry number, the pot has changed hands many times crossed an international border and changed identities as part of the laundering process. It's now legitimately available for purchase. It's legal for the average tourist to buy and export the object from the licensed shop in Jerusalem. It's legal, but what's not right is the resultant pillaged landscape destroyed in the quest for this saleable artifact. Also, the lack of due diligence is not right. Perhaps the buyer asked about the archeological fine spot, which the dealer could easily create, but perhaps they didn't ask uh, how or when it was recovered. Undiscriminating demand, that is buying without asking for all of the complete backstory or not requesting an export license. And there is also where another loophole is in this situation because in only one place where I have interviewed people is there a sign saying 
in a licensed shop, ask us for an export license. And in only one of the current guidebooks, the Blue Guide by Kay Prague, does it say if you're going to buy an antiquity in the licensed shop in Israel, make sure you get an export license. So all of this uh, has an unintended but significant have have unintended but significant significant consequences. Society is harmed by the ongoing destruction of archaeological landscapes through illegal excavation in search of commercial items for the market. All right, so let's recap in our consideration of legal versus right and the mitigation of harmful consequences. And we do this with an eye towards eliminating unregulated activities in the antiquities market. We need smarter collectors. We need a tightening of legal loopholes and quirks in existing national and international legal regimes. We need inter and intra agency cooperation on border control and oversight of import exported materials. I didn't go into that as much today, but I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A. We need to really consider the problem of partage. We need further examination of the systemic injustice in earlier law, the legacy of occupation, imperialism and colonialism. And that's actually, I'm a, while I'm a fellow at the Center for Ethics, that's one of the things I'm looking at, the problem of partage. And then we really need to think about how we can be better communicators about the direct link between demand, both legal and illegal for archeological artifacts and the destruction of archeological objects, sites and monuments. It's pretty sobering to have that tie to terrorism, but I'm not sure we're getting the word out as broadly as uh, we could be. The consequences of demand are things like this, the looting at the EB1A site of FEFA on the Dead Sea Plain in Jordan. All of those divots are looters holes. I showed you the map with the green dots. This is a close-up of this. But more importantly is our ancient ancestors scattered on the site of FEFA because the looters don't want the humans, they just want the grave goods that are buried with these ancient ancestors. So in none of the press releases and available Virginia Theological Seminary documentation of the consultations around the sale of this neo-Assyrian relief, was there any mention of the possible repatriation to the country of origin? Iraq. Once the sale was announced, a GoFundMe campaign was mounted to raise funds to buy the relief for the people of Iraq, and perhaps to sway public opinion against the sale, but the campaign was unsuccessful and the sale went ahead. There was a lot of bad press after the sale, including this hashtag stolen artifact of the day where it was the neo-Syrian relief. But um, people continue to be denied access to their past. The sale of artifacts is legal and there are undesirable consequences and quirks that aren't right. I want to offer my thanks because my work relies on the kindness of strangers and I'm indebted to the many people who've spoken to me over the years. I must also take this moment to thank the Israel Antiquities Authority, the Palestine Department of Archaeology and Cultural Heritage, and the Jordanian Department of Antiquities, who have all been incredibly supportive of this research.